Um, okay, this is the uh, intro for the podcast. Now that I got all the cracker out of my teeth, let's do this. Uh, <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to the Silver Screen Fiends podcast. I'm your host, Sam. And I'm Blake. And although we are sadly out of the month of spook, we've landed right into November, which is my second favorite time of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, today we're dedicating an entire episode to Chinatown um, because we actually have an episode planned for neo-noirs, but we figured like because this movie there's way too much going on in this movie to just like touch on it for 10 minutes and then move on (laughs) um this really is like to me this is like what well so it is neo-noir and for those that do not know what that exactly means it basically just means um a movie made out of the 40s and 50s that has noir like elements so because noir is basically restricted to like between the 40s and the 50s um but this movie like really just seems like it is living in the past and what i really love about it is it's kind of like the (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) i didn't know norbit was joining us well, we're doing neo noir. Isn't that a neo noir movie? There's a mystery in Norbit. <laughs> That's true. Norbit is a neo noir. So, uh, this one is special for a lot of reasons because I feel like it's the last movie to do things the way they did in Hollywood before they shifted into like this new era of blockbusters and devoting more money towards marketing as opposed to the production and development of things. Um, Cause shortly after this movie, you have jaws. Which I was going like, to say, this is a year before jaws when like everything changed pretty much. Yeah. And that's when you have like big blockbusters now. And that's where like all the time and resources are being spent. But Chinatown really for so many reasons is just amazing. I mean, the screenplay for this movie is probably regarded as one of the best because it is so multi-layered and it works on so many levels and it just seems to hit the nail on the head for like exactly what it was trying to do like as far as a neo-noir a love letter to noir um being critical about uh the hero versus uh villain debate there's just so much going on here, and that's why like I'm excited to actually just talk about this movie. Yeah, um, especially it's pretty crazy because it, it this movie feels like it's like adapted from a book or something, but it's completely original, which I didn't realize. It does, yeah, it does. Although I'm sure that, uh, well, I do know that there have been books like written about it, but yeah, it is kind of crazy to think that. Yeah, it's it's just got know. so many layers that like it kind of feels like a novel in many ways, which from what I've like learned in my research was very much on purpose. Mm-hmm. They've like very much wanted this to feel like a detective novel and, and obviously like a uh, homage to noir movies too. But, but in particular, like Raymond Chandler novels is kind of what they were going for with the screenplay. And I definitely think they, they nailed it. Yes, uh, for sure. And you have an all-star crew here. Um, well, it's weird because nobody actually directed this movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's really weird that this movie doesn't have yeah. a director. 
Yeah. One of yeah. the only ones. So weird. Uh, yes. So Roman Polanski directed it, but <laughs> we're not going to talk about him. But we have the great Jack Nicholson. We have Faye Dunaway. And we have John Huston, who I think really, um, although he is not in the movie, say as much as Jack's character, uh, Jake gets Giddis, um, which I thought the first time I watched this movie, I thought it was Guinness. <laughs> I, I, I could have sworn it was Guinness, like the way they pronounce it. Yeah. Um, but he may not be in the movie as much, but he really was like the perfect pick for this because he not only plays such a great antagonist, but John Houston to me is really like uh, a pivotal pioneer when it comes to the noir movement because, you know, although he is an American director, he with the Maltese Falcon, his adaptation of that, that really is like when I think the quintessential noir movie, it's the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. When I think quintessential neo-noir, it's Chinatown. So to see that he's involved in this is cool because it almost seems like it's like a tribute. Like you're including this legend in this Mm -hmm. movie to, to sing its own praises and talk about how much he was an influence on the genre too. Yeah. It's very much the kind of thing like Tarantino does a lot now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like including uh, Gordon Lowe in Kill Bill. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, like I said, we have Jack Nicholson who plays a uh, Jake JJ <laughs> Giddis, <laughs> and he is a private eye. And um, one thing I absolutely love about this character is um, off the bat, you can tell that they threw out most conventional character traits that are affiliated with noir. Um, He definitely plays uh, kind of one of those characters who's, who's smooth and he's kind of got like that air about him, but it's, it's more, it's more about like a big theme of this movie um, is, is like the, the hero versus villain complex. And with someone like Jake, he can't get a pulse on him. And he, he he does it so well. It's so seamless that like <laughs> you, he he just shifts gears. Like he like you think he's gonna do one thing. He says something completely different, and and he's driven by this vanity that he has. Like like he has a hero complex, which like we'll get into more when we discuss the plot. But I think like to me, obviously, one of his best roles, hands down. You know, and um, yeah. Yeah, Jake's such a good character. It like really is I feel like it's not I don't see people talk about him as a character very often, but I would say definitely one of like the greatest movie protagonists. And great greatest is in the most well written and well acted, since he's kind of not not so great of a actual detective. <laughs> yes, yes. Which uh which yeah, that that is something I do wanna <laughs> touch on later because it really and and that's kind of a testament to his acting because like you can forgive a lot of the shit he's doing because of who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have Faye Dunaway who plays the femme fatale, and she is I would say close to being on par with Nicholson's performance in this because again it's hard to get a pulse on her and you always know something's up something sketchy and in most of these movies that's the case like uh, like a noir is just like this stinking shit onion that gets peeled back 
constantly until you finally are at the core in the last five minutes of the film. I think that should be the uh, title of this episode, Stinking Shit Onion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then... Okay, so yeah, that that that's the main cast. Um, so movie opens up with Giddis Nicholson talking to a very distraught man uh, named Curly, who's played by Burt Young, who I love, Burt Young, and he is only shown in this part of the movie and then towards the end of the movie, um, and he plays a more of a pivotal role at the end. But after after this client walks out, a new client walks in introduces herself as Mrs. Mulray. She says, uh, I think my husband is cheating. Uh, his name is Hollis. And he's the he's the head or the, the co-head of um, this major water company. And they're, they're trying to like introduce this new project. And that becomes a central uh, thing of the movie, like the driving force of why Jake keeps trying to uncover what's going on. Uh so once that happens, he starts his usual investigation of the matter. Uh, Giddis goes to a city hall meeting where they're discussing a new water project that Mr. Mulray is not on board with. Um, and of course, like the rest of the town isn't either. And, and, this, and this scene has one of the many, um, whether intentional or not, moments of comedic relief in the movie. Uh, there, there's somebody there. I, th- I think he's just a farmer, and he lets in a whole gaggle of sheep, and they're just running down the hall. And that's where you see Jake laugh, and, and and that scene always gets me too. And I think like the movie does such a good job at finding that balance of serious and silly, and I think a lot of that's attributed to Nicholson. I was gonna say, yeah, that's like the perfect explanation or like definition of his like performance, pretty much. Yeah, it's it's almost like there's elements of slapstick to it, Um, but it's not enough that it breaks your immersion of the film. And I got to say, out of the two hours and I think 10 minutes of this movie, there's never a moment where I'm like, wow, I'm taken out or wow, I'm bored. Like Mm -hmm. every second of it, I'm just like entranced. Um, yeah, which for a movie this long is is an accomplishment, definitely. It it is because most movies these days, I, I and obviously I could sit through longer movies, but when I look at those runtimes, I'm like, do we re- <laughs> do we really need a man running around in tights for two and a half hours? Like, can't we just can't we just dial that back a little yeah. bit? Um. So yeah, after so after this scene, uh, he 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 decides to tail Hollis to a dry riverbed. And he stakes it out for pretty much the entire day and night. And he doesn't really see Hollis do much, except he talks to this young boy on a horse. And then um, fast forward to, to nighttime. Um, and then that's kind of like the end of that. And then um, so. So, yeah, I was I was talking about the, the comedic relief of, of the movie. Uh, then we fast forward to. Like there's a couple moments I really love, like when he's in the park telling telling Hollis and this mysterious woman and he accidentally kicks this tile on the ground. It's like it was funny, but it's also meant to build tension. But but like what this movie is really good at is misdirection, because like every time you think something really suspenseful is about to happen, it kind of just flips the script literally and it just moves on into like another deep dive of something else 
Um, but then we have uh, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie back at Giddis's office. He he starts telling a very dirty and pretty racist joke, and he doesn't know that the real Mrs. Mulray is behind him. And and like his his um his uh <laughs> his assistant's like trying to tell him like stop like stop telling the fucking joke, and then he turns around and sees her, and and now this is like I remember the first time I watched the movie, I was really confused, and we're only like I think twenty minutes into this movie. And by this point, I was thoroughly confused because I'm like, wait, what do you mean you're the real Mrs. Mulray? Like, then who's the other bitch? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I, I just I love how like at every turn I'm just trying to fool you. Um, but so when this happens, she's um she's uh, understandably upset. She wants him to drop everything. She wants to file a lawsuit. And um, and obviously like with this new layer of complexity jake is becoming more interested in the case um and so some other shit happens then jake goes to hollis's office and he finds a clue but um russ yelburton who is uh i think he's he's someone else involved in the department he's like he's he's like pretty high up too um he gets escorted out by him and uh and then back to i think right after this jake goes to hollis's house and he sees this worker and and in a really insignificant scene he sees um this worker trying to clean the pond and i i forget exactly like what he's doing but he says it's bad for the glass which you think is like a mispronunciation um, but Jack like gets really nosy and he tries to see what's in the pond. And before he can, Mrs. Mulray comes and stops him. And uh, Jack is very insistent on speaking to Hollis because at this point he feels like he's been made a fool. And that kind of goes into his vanity and kind of his complex throughout the movie. He feels like, he's bigger and tougher than he really is as a person um when as a matter of fact he's just a pi who uh makes very questionable decisions in regards <laughs> to his practice <laughs> yeah i think that's one of the best parts about his character is how he thinks he's much more like of a hero than he actually is and is kind of like constantly proven how he's not <laughs> Oh, he's yeah. not what he thinks he is. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's a major theme of the movie. Yeah, it's a good play on the like classic noir hero, but we'll we'll get into that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. So then, after this, uh, some other stuff happens. Then Jake goes down to the reservoir. He wants to speak to Hollis. Um. He runs into his old cop buddy because you find out that he he used to be a cop. Uh, his name is Lou Escobar. And that's when he finds out that Hollis is dead and his body washes up. And now it's kind of like, all right, what the fuck is going on? Like, this, <laughs> like there's no way that like I was just telling this guy and then there was like a fake wife and a real wife. And now he's just mysteriously dead after he doesn't want to participate in a water project. So now we have like pretty much most of the makings of a classic noir at this point. <laughs> so... <clears throat> So uh, after all that's transpired now, 
uh, the real Mrs. Mulray, who uh, whose real name is Evelyn, hires Giddis to to get to the bottom of things. Um, meanwhile, the the fake Mrs. Mulray, Ida, who she reveals her name as Ida, calls and gives Jake a clue about searching in the obituary for something, and I, I forget exactly what it said in there. Like it listed two names, but that's the clue I'm I was a little uncertain about. Um, and then Jake speaks to the coroner and, uh, he finds out there was a drowned body and, uh, goes back to that riverbed that he stalked Hollis at. And he finds that young boy on a horse that Hollis spoke to. And this is when the boy's talking about how the river, well, the water comes and goes in different parts of the river. And this is kind of where Jake is starting to piece together. Well, what are they doing? Like, why are they dumping water? Like, this isn't the natural movement of the riverbed. Um, so Jake obviously decides to take matters into his own hands and he investigates this river site after dark and he hears a couple of gunshots in the distance and he gets so spooked out. He, he goes into this, like, little, I don't know what you call it, like a little funnel area and, and water starts shooting out and he gets carried like, <laughs> like absolutely hilarious <laughs> which which i absolutely love yeah so he gets like pushed against this grate and then he finally gets out and he's understandably upset he's like okay well fuck this and so he tries to peace out and um he gets confronted by claude and some random crony who's actually played by polanski mm-hmm. and unfortunately says one of my favorite lines of the movie so they, they got him up against the grade. The other guy's holding him and trying to rough him up. And uh, and Polanski's character goes, uh, you know what happens to nosy fellows? They lose their noses. <laughs> and he takes his pocket knife and slices like the inside of his nostril going out. And which like was great because you, you like you think it's an empty threat at first. And he just fucking does it. Like he just jabs that knife into his nostril. Um <laughs> Which is funny too, because like it just forces him to wear a nose cast for the rest of the movie, which, which like he is like so iconic now, like that him with the bandage and everything. Yeah, and I think I think uh, like we've been discussing, I think it's I think that's kind of important symbolism to who he is as a character, like somebody who tries to take himself seriously, but like this is quite literally the the result of his but, actions. Yeah, that's glaringly. <laughs> on his face for the entire rest of the movie yeah like like the the symbolism in this movie is is pretty uh i don't know i mean i mean mean, mean, (laughs) thank you this has been the silver screen (laughs) so (laughs) uh back at the office jake receives a call from ida telling him to leave her out of any information that comes to light and um that's kind of that's kind of like from what I understand that's kind of like the end of her character like it's it's much more focused on uh Jake and Evelyn and everyone else now but I just uh I just really think that Jake <laughs> at this point you almost would expect Jake to stop right I mean he he's he's had his nose sliced he's had very important people tell him to look the other way but in a way, you almost admire his stupidity. 
because <laughs> it because it's like it, it's it's qu- quite clearly a a tastefully done satire on the the noir hero mm-hmm. but uh <laughs> but obviously he's just he ends up being an idiot but there's just something about it that i really like it, it's yeah it, it makes him so much more likable to not be like the classic like un un uh like like unflawed hero like he is such an like incredibly flawed character that it makes you like him like he feels he feels more real in many ways yeah and um and something i was gonna wait till the end to discuss but i mean it it fits perfectly right now um and the fact that it is like a critique on this traditional template in film and noir in general of like this false heroic narrative where it's like good guy always wins bad guy always loses which is like a comforting narrative but i'm so glad it turned its back on that conventional thinking because you know jake's ultimate downfall like we've been saying is his vanity and how much of a hero he wants to be and he could have made some very different logical decisions in this story that would have probably led to events at the end not transpiring but I think because he did what he did is why the movie's so strong is like because he's going through this shit and it's real and it's relatable. And it's like most people want to be the hero. Most people want to do good and investigate and dive deep and build towards something. And then ultimately you just get shit on. That's uh, <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> like 90 yeah. percent of the time. That's what like. Yeah. And pretty much his own like vanity, like you said, is is basically the catalyst for everything that happens after he gets involved. Like none of these things would have happened if he had stayed out pretty much. But yeah. He can't, like he won't let himself not try and be the hero. Yeah. And uh, he yeah, he felt challenged like earlier in the movie, like I was saying, when he confronts Evelyn at our house, he he makes it abundantly clear he doesn't want to be a fool. Like, okay, yeah, you drop this, you're dropping this lawsuit against me, but I don't care. Like, I'm still pursuing this case. So you're gonna have to deal with it. Like that's and that's such a ballsy move. It's like no matter what the subject matter is, he just keeps mm-hmm. poking and prodding. And um, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And whereas like classic noir stories would have that work out for him. Obviously, as we see, it it does not in this case. It, it does quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, like um, his like never give up attitude is his downfall instead of the thing that like pushes him above everyone else. Exactly. So at this point, Jack uh, goes to lunch with Mrs. Mulray, and he tries pressing her for more information because he's a uh, he does idiotic things, but he he is quite intelligent as a character he he knows when he's being bullshitted and he knows that evelyn is withholding information and this is when evelyn um divulges some more information about how you know not only was my husband cheating but like i also sleep around (laughs) said more tastefully but um and now that jake knows that there's like been multiple affairs it's kind of like all right well now i'm more sus of the situation and he's like still convinced she's hiding shit. And this is where he just lays his cards out. And he's like, listen, your husband was actually murdered and they're dumping water. Like, the, like <laughs> this is not, this is not anything other than that now. <laughs> um, which I think is just like so great that he's just trying to 
just lay it all out at every chance. He's so like cold and calculated about that. He doesn't care what the response is. He just he wants to get to the bottom of it. Um, so he's just like, yeah, no, he was fucking murdered, and <laughs> the town the town is being real shady. Um, and he knows like there's someone bigger in power, but he doesn't quite know that yet. But he's like getting close to figuring that out. And it's only until he gets back to uh, Yarl Burton's office that he finds out about the big baddie named Noah Cross, played by John Houston. And he uh, he co-owned the War Department uh, alongside Hollis. So this becomes very interesting because with the information given to you, you're like, well, wait a minute. Hollis was partners with Noah. Does that... So what what does that mean for Evelyn? <laughs> um, and and like the movie's also good. So the movie's plot can be complicated, but it does a good job at feeding it to you. It's not like yeah. they don't keep it as cryptic as you would think. Mm-hmm. So like that's kind of the good part. Is like yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about it later. But it's this movie is like the closest example of like if it was an adaptation of a book, for example it feels like this movie is told in the first person and Jake is the main character and you don't know anything that Jake doesn't know. And you don't know any less than Jake knows. So like, as the movie is like unraveling, unrolling around him, you're getting the information exactly the same as he is as the character in the movie, which is kind of cool. I I actually read that originally the script had like a voiceover kind of like a lot of classic noir movies and uh, Roman Polanski decided to take it out to like kind of enhance the fact that you are watching or like the audience kind of is Jake in this movie in some way. It's very much like a first person point of view, which you don't get very often in, in movies in general. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that more because if they were to include that narration, I definitely think that the, the element of relatability may have been lost and, and it could have suffered due to that. Um, but yeah, I, I really like I really think like at this point in the movie, it's like, all right, you're you're given enough information where it's like <laughs> this is getting real fucked. And it, it does kind of in a way it's it plays out. It's funny because like, you know, in the past year, I've, I've started watching Columbo and it's kind of interesting, like how they lay out the story. It's It's like almost in a similar fashion because it's like. Like you said, the, the you know what you know. It, like, there's not anything more. It's not trying to do anything too insane or mysterious. Like, it's just right. enough. Um, it's also interesting. Another thing that I, I mean, you notice it when you're watching it, but I, I realized it afterward after having it pointed out is this movie doesn't have a single scene that Jake is not in. There's no, like oh, this is going on over here while Jake's doing this. Like, the whole movie is only him. He's in every single scene of the movie. Yeah, that's... That, I, I didn't even really think about that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Like, I, again, I didn't realize it as I was watching it, but afterwards having it pointed out, it's like, oh, yeah, he, he's in every single scene of the movie. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I respect that decision. I think that, <laughs> I think that a lot of movies try try to tell a story in the back seat mm-hmm. like and and it were and of course that works most of the time but i think with this one like it's just it was just so perfectly executed 
like yeah. the way they handled it. Yeah. And like I said, that's why it feels so much like a novel as opposed to like a movie where you're kind of just watching things happen to these characters. Whereas this one, it really feels like you're following Jake specifically on this like journey that he's on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so at this point, Jake is, is starting to really understand there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with water being dumped in a drought. Why are they doing that? There's this misdirection. Where does Evelyn play into all this? So, so uh, Evelyn wants to pay Jake handsomely to get to the bottom of her husband's death. Um, and it, it's at this point through more conversation that you find out that Evelyn is Noah Cross's daughter and, and Hollis was married to her. And so it's like, all right, well, you married your father's business partner. Like, why did you do that? You know, it's it happened like after they sold the water company to, um, so now he's like really getting sketched out. Uh, so, so Jake sits down with uh noah cross for lunch and this and this scene is great because i don't know if this was intentionally symbolic or i'm just looking too much into this but when when jake sits down for lunch with noah he gets served a fish with its head still intact and like the way it was presented and the way the camera zoomed in on it I thought it was supposed to be like a metaphor for, oh, you, you're you going to sleep with the fishes if you keep pressing the matter. And I don't know if that was just like me and my traumatized childhood filled with gangster <laughs> movies speaking for it. But I think like with all the other symbolism in the movie, I thought like maybe that was something or yeah. it could be a crack pot theory. I, don't I know. feel it. Well, it's, <laughs> it, it, I feel like, like you said, it's got too much emphasis for it to be nothing. So it's kind of I was thinking also it could be like kind of representing how Jake's kind of like a fish out of water. Like he's he's kind of like in too deep and like out of his element in many ways. But again, I don't know. That could just be making that up. <laughs> yeah, I also think, too, because like then you find out that Noah crosses. I think he's either a member or the no, I think he's the owner of a of a club called the um the Albacore Club. And I think like maybe the symbolism of the fish like that, because like the logo is similar, like maybe it, it was something like that. Maybe it's like a double meaning or something. All but, about the fish. The well, fish is the key. The, fi <laughs> the fish <laughs> is going in the thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm buying a shirt with the fish on it. Um, so, th so this is where you have uh, one of the best conversations of the whole movie. Because um, this, so Noah wants to hire Jake and and pay basically pay double what Evelyn was offering to find this mysterious girl, and um, and you find out that Hollis is the reason Noah's so rich and powerful. And Noah, and one of the things about Noah Cross as a character that's so interesting to me is he's the big baddie, and he's clearly doing evil shit. But like you really don't get that vibe and he's even grateful for the fact that Hollis helped him so far through through this entire journey and I mean of course he's putting up a front right but the way he does it it's not like it, it's kind of it's kind of hard to explain but it's like you you almost see him be human for a minute and uh and I find that interesting 
especially with a character John Houston's playing. <laughs> but um, so so no, so Noah offers him that money, whatever. And, and then comes my favorite line, uh, which is as as Jake is poking him for for more information. Uh, Noah goes, you may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. And uh, and of course, get get us quips back with that's what the district attorney used to tell me in Chinatown, which, by the way, the, the name Chinatown is said about 10 times in this movie. So <laughs> if you were looking for the, the the iconic, oh, there it is, the title of the movie. Um, of course, that happens in the last line of the movie, but like throughout the whole movie, it is basically so. Um, <laughs> but but at this point, you know how serious everything is now because it's it's clear Noah is behind a bunch of this shit, and he's still like not really, he's not really intimidated by it. He, he knows he's got the money and the power, um, and now you start to question more of Evelyn's motives and. At this point, like the first time I watched this, like I really didn't know where the hell the story was going. And it gets to a really fucking dark place, too. (laughs) You know, you get a movie that's like kind of comedic, bright and vibrant in its colors, fantastic cinematography. The story gets really dark. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, obviously we will save that before we get there. Uh, But then we get to Jake visiting the LA Hall of Records to find out about recent land sales. And he finds out that most of the valley has been sold in the past month. So he's like, all right, what the hell is going on? And he like, he asks, uh, I love this too. He asked the guy working at the desk, if you could borrow a ruler and he, he takes this big book with all the sales in it, and he goes to this one page and he, he like, presses it up against it and he pretends to cough really loudly and rip the paper out and just like just like another fun nicholson moment yeah there's a lot in this that you could see in like pretty much every like comedic and like action like detective movie that comes later there's a lot of like i feel like this kind of laid the groundwork for like the like action comedy genre in the future even though it's not really a comedy it's like so many of these moments are like things that you see in like Martin Lawrence movies in, in like 30 years, you know? Yeah. Especially I, like, like the scene you said where he's telling the joke and like, they're trying to tell him that she's in the room and it's like that. I feel like I've seen that on every like movie ever, just every movie. Oh yeah. And, and you could definitely see Chinatown's influence through the years. I mean, you could look at LA confidential, go look at even fucking who framed Roger rabbit. Yeah. Um, and and it, interestingly enough, I can even see it in the Big Lebowski. Like, oh, yeah, like, definitely. Like, so it's it really it, it's so interesting how it, it you know, it, it's it's crazy, too, because it, it's such a revered movie. Like, it's considered one of the best movies of all time, mm-hmm. which but I would it, say it definitely is. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But but it's so funny because it's never really in the conversation. Yeah. You know, like people people kind of like respect it. And 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 will and will sing its praises when brought up, but I never really hear anyone talk about like its massive influence. Yeah, which uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's very much in part due to the director of the movie. <laughs> yeah, which um, which is crazy too because uh, all that stuff with Polanski, I think, only happened a few years after. Did it? I don't even released. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure. I'm pretty sure it wasn't as long of a of a gap as I thought. I thought uh-huh. like. 
the information came to light 20, 30 years later, but it was, it was like, I'm pretty sure not long after that. So yeah, yeah I wouldn't be surprised either if it was Polanski mm-hmm. that, that did that. But um, yeah, it, it really, it really is uh, crazy to me how much this movie accomplished though. And, and it really, and I guess it kind of is like in, in a way um, a sick twisted metaphor for like, the movies of yesteryear you know because like the the movie does feel like a like a love letter and a long goodbye to to the past yeah definitely it's kind of like the last of its kind and it kind of like shut the door behind it in many ways for like this genre yeah and it, it's and so like rewatching it i was like you know what it's it's even sadder now because it's like yeah, I have such like a profound appreciation for for 20th century Hollywood as, as many as many problems as there were, but yeah. <laughs> but it's one of those and, things where you're like you're not getting it back, <laughs> right? And like obviously there are other like neo noir movies after this, but this is kind of like the it feels different than a lot of the ones that came later. Yeah, because it because it, it it almost like even though it is obviously a big like tribute to the genre it's one of the only movies like that that feels like it fits in with that genre more than just being like a tribute to it if that makes any sense at all oh of course i i i couldn't agree more like i was saying earlier like it's it seems to strike a great balance of yeah. what makes a noir awesome while also critiquing it while also paying tribute while also doing something unique mm-hmm. and that's like kind of almost unheard of because yeah. because it, it's kind of hard to strike a balance like that because otherwise you end up leaning too much in one direction right and and it really just made like it just manifested into something so unique that i don't really like i don't really know if you could do a movie like this anymore you could do yeah. you could, obviously there are neo-noirs but it really like there's way too much going on both behind the scenes and in the forefront that like i couldn't ever imagine something reaching this caliber (laughs) yeah yeah it's also a lot of the neo-noir movies that came after this were not set in this time period they kind of all i mean we'll talk about that when we do that episode but like you look at like blade runner and like the big lebowski and like all these neo-noirs later everything kind of stopped they kind of stopped setting the movies in like the 30s like this one is and uh so this is like one of the last ones like that too that takes place in this like like it it almost feels like a fictional world of like noir and uh like it i I think it it does a really good job of kind of like capturing that without feeling like it's just like ticking off the box as if that makes sense like so many so many movies that are like tributes to old genres sometimes it just feels like it's like okay you gotta have this you gotta have this and you gotta have this to fit into this genre and Chinatown's one of the only ones that doesn't feel like it's just trying to like hit the points of a noir movie. And instead it just is this own unique noir movie. Yeah. And that, that is important to me too, because uh, like you said, and like I should have mentioned in the beginning of the episode, it it takes place in the thirties and, but you don't, but it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of great how timeless it is because you watch it and you don't feel like you're being 
dragged through this time machine where they just need to do it for the sake of hitting the beats of a noir film. Yeah. Like there's no transatlantic accent. There's no super heavy black dynamic lighting. Um, mm-hmm. There's a cool, there's a cool scene though with Jake when he's, he's like, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And he like goes to his house. He takes a shower and like, before he goes to sit in his bed, there is a moment of like kind of this nice contrast and lighting, but it's not, but there's no, they're not like expressly going for, okay, here's the checklist. Mm -hmm. We got to go down. I mean, you got some of the mainstays, you know, like your femme fatale and your hard boiled private eye, but it's not like, Oh my God, drill it into your fucking head. It's it's its own thing. It's like when they sat down to make this movie, they weren't like, let's make a tribute to noir movies. They were like, let's make a 30s noir movie. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And I think that anyone, most people who would try to do that these days, and it's nobody's fault, but most people who would try to do that these days, it would it would just come across as like, oh, you're just trying to do a right. noir. Like, well, this is also before like nostalgia became such a like marketable thing. Because like, I love Stranger Things, but like, look at Stranger Things. Like, Stranger Things does certain things because '80s movies, Spielberg movies, need to have certain things. And this was kind of before that became like the the go to like uh, kind of way to like do like tributes or homages. So it, it it's very different in that regard. Yeah, yeah, very very well said. I think yeah in the case with like stranger things it's like <laughs> and yeah, i love stranger things but oh, stranger of things course but is it, one of those properties that there's certain things that they do because to make an 80s like tribute show you you have to do these things yeah i mean yeah especially especially look at the character of billy who's quite literally a caricature of rob Lowe in the 80s like it's like like down to like the fucking cross earring it's like it's like yeah like it's cool and you're on brand but i see what you're saying it's like they're kind of just doing it because they know that that's like the tribute yeah it's on the checklist of things that the 80s movie has to have yeah um so so then we have um jake uh going to visit the valley and he goes towards these uh, orange groves and immediately. And, and I love this too. It's like, like he goes to these groves. Right. And it's not even like he doesn't like, there's no, there's no buildup. There's no him sneaking around. He's in his car. And just as soon as the, this guy on a horse sees him, he starts shooting at the car. And so, it, and so there's like this little chase scene where he's going in and out of the orange groves. And then he's confronted by like these farmers and workers, and one of the owners is there. And he's like, "Who sent you?" Is the water department, whatever. And this is where Jake reveals he's a he's a private eye, which which is great because it's another moment of vulnerability in a character like Jake because he immediately tells them what he's there for. Like like you would figure a, a PI who's supposed to be confident and and um and well private for lack of a word, like, you know, keep shit <laughs> confidential would keep it to himself and try to play it off like more cool and try to get out of a situation. He just immediately snakes out of himself. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's another important um, thing to include as far as the character. Right. Because it's another one of those moments where you see that Jake's not perfect. He's not the perfect noir hero. 
Uh, yeah, and then there's like this another mini confrontation. He kicks this one worker in the balls, and then this other guy's like hitting him over the head with a with a crutch, and he gets knocked out. And, and this is like true vulnerability because he wakes up and and you see like this this farmer and his wife, and he's coming to, and you see Evelyn is there, who pretty much saves the day. <laughs> um, but but this is where Jake figures out that. The land is being bought for super dirt cheap and it's being sold in order to perpetuate the need for this water project that doesn't need to happen just so they can add millions of dollars to their pockets. Um, so he tracks down the name of this Jasper Crab who supposedly died two weeks ago, but also bought land a week ago. So he's like, all right, th- th- we're, we're really going to get to the bottom of this now. Um, peeling back that shit stinky onion you know <laughs> so, title. yeah so they go to this retirement home and there's a, and there's this board that has like a bunch of names on it and, and like every single one of the names was also in the property list and and jake tries to like snake his way into uh like a little tour and trying to like ask people questions and and he finds this old woman who and this is cool too this this old woman is um, I think she was um, knitting something or she was given this thing with the with the Albacore Club uh, crest on it, which is the club that is owned by Noah. So it's like a, it's like so she's talking about how um, the members of the board would come by and give her gifts and whatever. And like that's kind of it's kind of another. It's kind of like another uh, allusion to the fact that, no, there's so much power there. And and they and they're using their money and their power to buy people off, essentially. Um, and and that's where Jake is attempted. Uh, there's attempted silencing upon Jake, and a bunch of cronies catch up to him. And and Evelyn once again saves his ass, brings the car around, and they go. Uh, shortly after this, that's when you figure out like he was a cop in Chinatown, and. While she's cleaning up his injuries, they of course start kissing because you know femme fatale, like that, like that's just the thing that was going to happen. And uh, it's interesting because it's like the 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 romantic subplot is is done in a way that I like because it's not none of it is really persuasive as far as. Um, Jake's final actions. It, he obviously cares for her, but it's not. But it's not the driving force of why he's doing what he's doing, which I think is good. Um, but after they fuck, for lack of a better word, uh, <laughs> Evelyn tries to pry a little bit into Jake's past, but he's being reserved, and he alludes to an incident. Uh, where he was trying to protect someone and and it gets interrupted by a phone call, which at this point you kind of assume that um, maybe part of the reason Jake is the way he is is because he accidentally lets someone die under his care. And, and that's kind of like what leads to this insecure man you see today of like always trying to be overconfident and get down to the bottom. Hero of complex. The hero complex. Exactly. So after the phone call, Jake is like, 
well, where are you going? I need to know. And she's like, no, just trust me. Just trust me. And, and like, of course, at this point, it's abundantly clear she's hiding some serious shit. So, um, uh, then, then Jake says, well, just so you know, I met with your father behind your back. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so they both got some shit going on, but it's very clear, like, what she has going on is, is going to, like, really shit's really gonna hit the fan at some point um so she leaves but jake ends up tailing her in his car or i think he borrows um someone someone's car i think he borrows a uh, the the uh the dead hollis's car or something and and this is and this is where shit really ramps up because uh we we go back to uh this random house uh i think i think it's the butler's house i think it's uh evelyn's butler's house um who by the way the butler in this movie is played by james hong uh, yeah <laughs> which is which is just a fun little thing like i remember the first time i watched it, i was like wait is that fucking james hong okay, i know that guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah J- so yeah jake doesn't trust the situation and he's led to this house and you could see through the window that there's this random girl there and you don't know who she is. You think like, Oh, is that Hollis's other girlfriend? Or, Oh, is like this woman related to Noah Cross somehow. And, and you see that she's trying to console her. She seems visibly upset. And, um, and and Jake is waiting in her car for her. (laughs) And, and this, and this is where Evelyn says, Oh, she's actually my sister, which is like, oh, oh is she now? <laughs> like, I don't know about that. Um, but after this, this is where I was mentioning earlier. Jake, Jake goes to his house. He showers, gets ready for bed. We see a cool nod to like the dynamic lighting of Noir. But as soon as he lies down, he gets a phone call, um, which draws Giddis to Ida's apartment where he finds her dead body and and now you're like well wait why why is she dead like what what the fuck is going on here like why is the fake mrs mulray dead um so escobar uh the old cop buddy is there and he's he's explaining that the coroner found salt water in mulray's lungs which means he didn't drown in that freshwater reservoir where he saw the body. That means he had to have died somewhere with salt water. So it's like, hmm, where have we been before in the story that has salt water, right? Like things are now suspiciously tying back to Noah. <laughs> so, but Escobar, because of course we, we need this, <laughs> Escobar is like, no, Evelyn did it. Like Evelyn's the one who murdered him straight up um he's like you better you better produce her quick or like i'm gonna arrest you <laughs> and so back at the mulray mansion uh Giddis finds evelyn gone and there's like bags packed up and the servants are packing up the house and this is where he finds out that that garden pond where we were in the beginning of the movie is filled with salt water and um and there's a there's a pair of eyeglasses in it, which is what he was trying to fish out earlier in the movie. Yeah, that scene that felt like 
insignificant like nothing yeah it is now like one of the most pivotal plot points in yeah. the whole movie <laughs> which with, is pretty with, cool yeah which again i love like it was like and it wasn't even a red herring because it's like there was no significance right. to it like they just right. they just throw it in the background <laughs> they're like okay yeah. maybe yeah it's really well done because you're like maybe he's reaching for evidence at this point like you don't know what's well especially because we see like that's kind of just how jake acts like he's always like looking around and touching things and like doing stuff so it doesn't feel weird that he's like doing something and we don't like really get much much explanation for it yeah exactly um so so this is where jake confronts evelyn is like okay what's going on with hollis's mistress I, I know you, you better start talking like I don't buy this shit that's your sister and so and he smacks her around a little bit and then and then yeah and then we get to uh, a little bit of abuse he, he's, <laughs> he's smacking her around and she's and through each smack she's like she's my sister she's my daughter she's my sister <laughs> and then this is where she says she's my sister and my daughter and and that is just one of the craziest, most fucked up twists I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, um, it gets dark fast. It gets dark really fucking fast because <laughs> now you find out that Noah Cross raped Evelyn and and had this child. Um, and, and it was at a young age too. I think she was like fifteen. Yeah. Um. Which so again, so yeah. Odd, oddly, uh, ironic yeah. given information that would come to light later. I I know. I'm just real. I'm just real glad it wasn't written by Polanski. Yeah, right. That would have made it a <laughs> thousand the, times worse. The irony is really weird. It yeah, it is really unfortunate. So Jake produces the eyeglasses, and and she says, "Well, the, these are not his. He didn't wear bifocals." So now it's like, all right, well, whose fucking glasses are these? So um, Jake is now forced by Escobar. To, to show where the maid lives because he's he's confronted by them and and he, he's like well you know i i know where they went and escobar's like well you better tell me they're like oh they went to the maid's house so he actually ends up uh misdirecting them to curly's house so now we have curly back in the movie uh for like a minute um and he's like ready to sit down for dinner and he just goes in the house he's like Curly, I gotta, you got, you gotta drive me around the block real quick, and puts his coat on, drives around the block. It's like, listen, can, can you drive a couple people across the border like later tonight? Uh, and he's like, okay, because because Curly, it's 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 never like discussed how much Curly owes Jake as far as monetary value, but like he's willing to forget that and even throw him money to do this favor. So, so at this point, Escobar knows what he did. Um, and so Giddis is trying to arrange for all the women to flee to Mexico, uh, Evelyn and Catherine. And uh, um, he summons Cross uh, to, to the Mulray home to, to sell their deal. And, and this is where Cross admits his plans to, um, to incorporate the land in the valley into the city of L.A., and irrigate it and develop it. And Jake's like, well, what, what, how much more money do you need? You, you got tens of millions of dollars. Is there anything 
you don't own that you need to own like what is this for and and noah's just like the future it's <laughs> like and the way he says it, it's almost like very doc brownie <laughs> um but yeah i i find that interesting because there really like as complicated as the movie becomes there really is no super driving force other than to reunite with this child of his this this the spawn of the rape child basically um but but it is interesting how like he's like yeah it's it's for the future and then at that point you're like well is he maybe trying to secure a nest egg for Catherine? like maybe that's what's driving him to do it or maybe he's just batshit fucking insane uh probably a combination of the two would be my best guess <laughs> yeah um and this is where Giddis lays it on the line he's like all right no more bullshit you you murdered you murdered hollis like i know you did it um and of of, of course cross is like well i mean whatever you think and then he gets held at gunpoint by one of his uh lackeys um and then Giddis is forced to drive them to chinatown where everyone's waiting uh but the police are there and they're they're getting sick of jake's shit and they detain him so it's like oh no you think he's getting arrested um and then noah and and this whole final sequence is so great but it's also very uncomfortable because no so so catherine does not know that noah is her is her like grandfather slash father um and so it's like this weird old man trying to like take her with him and, and evelyn gets into a very uh, emotion-filled battle with Noah because it's like, no, you, you fucking abused me. There's this bastard child. Like, I, I don't. You, if you think you're getting putting your hands on her, like you're fucking mistaken. And then, and then Noah himself is like, well, you know, you're gonna have to kill me to keep me away from her. And so Evelyn shoots him in the arm, and uh, which I personally like. I should have thought it should have been the fucking head, but that would have defeated the purpose of the end, the ending. Yeah. So, so uh, she starts to drive away with Catherine, but the police open fire. And, and of course I love that the cops are like 70 feet away from this car and they managed to shoot her behind the car and, <laughs> and, and just, and just, and tag her, they pick her off and, and, she dies. And so and so Catherine runs out of the car. She's hysterical. And Noah clutches clutches her and and it's basically implied like, oh, you're coming with me. Like he, he's gonna have uh he's gonna have ownership over Catherine now. So so after all this transpires, Escobar is like, All right, get us. I guess you're free to go. And of course, we end the movie with the very iconic line of Escobar saying, "Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown," and and that's it. Um, and like the that ending is crazy to me because it's like they threw out conventional storytelling with like the whole hero versus villain shit, but now it's like no, 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 evil really prevails. Yeah, like all the work that Jake put in this movie 
is essentially reversed. Right. And, and no in ac- many ways, he caused like the the all of these events to come together in the way that they did. Oh yeah, of course. Um and yeah, like and and Noah Cross gets away. Like he gets away with his crimes because he basically owns the police. Yeah. And and he and he gets away with Catherine. And it, it, it's one of those movies where I'm really glad it ended the way it ended because especially too like considering it's it's in the genre of noir because you know 99% of noir films usually end with good guy prevails mm-hmm. and this is like a nice dark twisted turn yeah which which also i had read in my like research for this episode that the writer originally wanted a happy ending and roman polanski fought him on it and obviously eventually he he won and and he said that that like a big influence on him wanting it to end this way was his wife being murdered by the Manson family a couple of years before they made this movie. And like, this was kind of like his way of dealing with it, I guess was, was like doing this dark ending. And, and like years later, the, the writer had admitted that he thinks that the, the uh, dark ending was the right choice, which I I definitely think it is. Yeah. That backstory of like, that's why, he insisted on this like bleak ending because of all the, you know, the insane things that had happened to him only a couple of years before this movie came out. Yeah. And I think it's really important because there, you know, I've seen a bunch of movies where um, there it's very clear the, the studio influence in an ending. And, and like the, a good example is uh, suspicion by Hitchcock. Uh, obviously like without going too much into it the end of the movie it, you you think one thing is supposed to happen but they very clearly handled it in like a no let's make it a happy ending thing even though the story really shouldn't have led there um and then it's like all right we're, we're gonna face the future together or whatever so i'm i'm just so when shit like this happens it is it's such a treat to me it's like Stick to your guns. I, yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a happy ending would kind of like do away with so many of the themes that are so important to this movie. Yeah. Like it's, it's important that Jake's actions are kind of like what lead to this like tragedy at the end. It's not, these things wouldn't have happened without his interference. And that like, is kind of the whole point of his character. Like it, it, it adds so much depth to his character for that to happen. Whereas if in the end he actually is the hero and like he's right the whole time about him being the hero, it kind of like negates a lot of what makes this movie so great and what makes Jake such a great character. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there's so much you could learn with a movie like this and there's, and it really like, and I, and I really do wonder if, they if anyone out there wants to like try to maybe not replicate this kind of movie but i, I really like because i know they still make neo norms but i really i really want to see someone take it back to their roots in a way and mm-hmm. and just and but also do something unique it's just um, and also, I don't know. Did you did you know there was like a sequel to this? Yeah, I was gonna ask if you. I didn't know until I did the research for this yeah. episode. 
and I wanted to ask you if you had seen it or not. I've not seen it. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, but I, th- I think it's called was it like the two Jakes? The two Jakes, yeah. And yeah. Jack Nicholson directed it. Oh, he directed it. Yeah, and it it has like a pretty crazy cast. Like uh, Harvey Keitel's in it. Uh, James Hong re- re- uh, reprises his role <laughs> as uh, the butler. <laughs> Yeah, he's in it again. Uh, oh it's God. written by the same guy who wrote the original. Um, and yeah, it's apparently it's not good. It does not have good reviews. But yeah, I did not know it existed. Yeah, I I, I, I guess it would make sense they do a sequel given like, I, I mean, I don't I don't really know like how did the box office. I assume it was it was Chinatown decent. did well. Yeah, and the sequel did not. Apparently, they wanted to do a trilogy. They wanted to do three movies, and the sequel did so poorly and was like received so poorly that they didn't never did a third one. Yeah, I wonder if they would try to like go back and do like a prequel story or something of like yeah, Jake like establishing his agency or some shit. CGI Jack Nicholson, young Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Listen, man, when I look at some of like the promo posters for the movie. Like not the ones done in a, a stylized way, but like of just like uh, Nicholson and Dunaway. It, it kind of he kind of looks like CG in a weird way. <laughs> like I don't yeah. know if you ever noticed that. Like yeah, you, I know I see what you mean. Yeah, I, it's kind of strange, but um, <laughs> I I really uh, there's there's really not much else you could say about it because it it. it, it defined it defined the genre that like it was paying tribute to yeah it, it like it like it, it caused like the rebirth yeah it it. <laughs> it it like defined it and ended it in many yeah. ways because it just like never it never like really got better than this as far as like detective movies set in the the actual time period when noir movies were coming out because like I said, other movies have done it really well. Like I would I would honestly argue that the Big Lebowski is probably the closest to this movie as far as like another neo-noir movie that was like so like well done as a part of the genre, but so unique. And I can't think of many others that are that are similar, but the Big Lebowski is what I was thinking of as we were talking about this. Yeah, I and I really hope at some point in the future, uh, people people could kind of take elements of of this movie and and maybe maybe we could have like a renaissance of neo noir. Um, and like I know there's been movies that have come out, and I haven't watched too many because I'm always a little hesitant, uh, yeah. especially especially with the genre I love so much, but. I, th- I mean, I th- it could it could be done. It mm-hmm. I think it could. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things from this movie too that I would like to see more of. Like I said, I I don't. There's not many movies that are done like this, like first person point of view kind of thing, very well. And uh, like I can't think of many others that do it the way that Chinatown does, where it's Jake is in every single scene. You only know what he knows. Like you don't see that very often. A lot of movies, especially like mysteries and stuff, will like have an opening scene that like shows the murder and like what happened, and then then you'll get to the detective later. And I I like how this one is just straight from the start. You're just with Jake on this journey the whole time. 
Yeah, pretty pretty well put. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate downfall of Jake Giddis. Jake Guinness. Guinness. I don't care what anyone says, it's Guinness. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting too in the research that I was doing that like this was not the first movie, but one of the earlier movies to use like the handheld cam. And uh, like as I was watching it there's a lot of shots in this movie that almost look like like what we're used to in like video games nowadays like a lot of like like handheld cam over the shoulder shots like following jake that like reminded me so much of video games that i thought was kind of interesting how like i'm saying like this is such like a first person point of view and you're like along with jake on this journey that it reminds me of uh, like a video game almost yeah, that that is that is interesting to think about. Um, and there's only been a, a few movies I would feel similar, like in um, in Touch of Evil, which is like considered one of the final noirs. Uh, Orson Welles is the director. The the opening shot is is like this one shot take, and it's go it's taking you through this small town, and it's. It is done in a way that like it's it's setting the tone for everything. Um, but also it's kind of like a matter of perspective. So yeah, I think yeah, with Chinatown, it's like the, the cinematography really like it's one of those things where you know what kind of movie it is, but it, it's also trying to like do its own thing. It it doesn't yeah. like it's not like trying to be overly stylized or anything. And you know, mm-hmm. we did touch on that earlier, but it, it really is interesting the way they did that. And it's cool that like this is also based on real events, you know. Like there there was like this whole thing that happened and it was either like late eighteen hundreds or early nineteen hundreds. It was like the same kind of scandal with water dumping and irrigation and yeah and so and and that's cool because like it kind of brought those issues to light Mm -hmm. in a way yeah for a movie that takes place in the 30s it has it's so like quintessentially a 70s movie as well like even down to like like the the whole like plot of the movie is very based on like conspiracies and like you know people in power like like making all these shady moves for the sake of just gaining power, not much else. Mm -hmm. And that's very like very much something that seventies cinema was starting to explore at that time. So it's, it's interesting how this is so much like a a noir movie and it's set in the thirties, but a lot of it is very telling of where like seventies film was at that time. Yeah, it, it is very much like I have the power I will amass the power. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very like conspiratorial, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but overall, like this is something I would pretty much recommend to anyone because it's such a, it's just such a fascinating story it, that I feel like you don't even need to inherently be a fan of the genre. Yeah. Like, you could just enjoy it as a movie. Mm hmm. Which and is I, why it's such a classic. Like anybody can, this movie is for anyone. Anyone who likes movies, pretty much. Yeah, some some of my favorite movies end up end up being multifaceted, mm-hmm. and then this is definitely one of them. And and I only really sat down and watched it for the first time a couple of years ago, and uh, and th- that's kind of like when I was getting really heavy into noir, and I was like, oh my god, 
it's like I know I know we got the classics like Maltese Falcon and Double Indemnity and shit like that, but this really like for something that was in the seventies, oh boy, it really is up there. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like you said, it's like this is such a classic movie that I feel like you don't see very often in the same conversation as like The Godfather or Jaws or like these movies that it's like these are the movies you have to watch. And and this one's kind of like on like the B list for some reason. Because same with me, I didn't watch and I, I took um, like a noir class in college. It was like a film class. And that was the first time I watched this movie. And I hadn't even really heard of it before then. Yeah. And it's one of those things where um, as generations go on, it'll probably be <clears throat> a little bit lost to time. But it's cool that like <clears throat> newer generation is is starting to discover the stuff, too, because yeah. it's it's fundamentally important to the foundation of film. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, it is such a shame that Roman Polanski is the one who directed it because I do feel as though people will avoid it because of that. And I don't blame them, but it is a shame that you like miss out on such a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of goes into that conversation of like, well, kind of it's, it's very difficult sometimes to separate are from the artist yeah and so i told i get it you know it's mm-hmm. it's tough um but yeah overall just like it's consistently engaging it's a cool dark detective story it's a fantastic unique take on noir while being its own thing and it just overall just captivates me that's the only word i could really use <laughs> for it it just captivates yeah me. this is also which is interesting one of those movies that if it had come out a different year would have easily won best picture, but it was up against Godfather two. And that's the only reason it did not win best picture. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Which is too bad because obviously Godfather two is one of the greatest movies ever made. But like, if this had come out maybe like a year before or something, um, it might, it would have definitely won best picture. The year before was the best picture winner was a movie. I never even heard of. (laughs) Yep. What could have been, <laughs> but it did uh, win for for screenplay though. Yeah, it did. It, it, yeah, it it won it won numerous awards across different, um, di- like different award ceremonies. But yeah, yeah, it's just a shame that it didn't get the best picture only because of the compa- uh, competition. I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Well, it's like we always say: movies suck. Yep, they do. Uh, yeah, I, and I did not start the episode with uh, with what we recently watched because I took I took a little bit of a break uh, because October, you know, I was doing one or two or three movies a day. So I was like, take a little break, get back in November. I rewatched Chinatown earlier today because I was like, I want to get back in the November on a on a on a good foot. So I was yeah. like, let me let me do one of the best here. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much to report from my recently watched either because I, <laughs> before rewatching Chinatown, I watched the Austin Powers movies. That's pretty much it. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Talk, speaking of neo noir, Austin uh, Powers, by who shagged me. You do not get more neo noir than that movie. <laughs> um, I will say, though, I did watch. So, ha- have we talked about, have you been watching the Chucky show? No, I. it's not on like, traditional streaming services yet so i still haven't like sat down and watched it but i've heard it's great if someone you know has 
like a cable or network package that you could sign onto the sci-fi website, jack that shit. Yeah. Because this is one of the best shows I've seen in years. Yeah, everybody's saying Straight that. Up. I'm so surprised. I am so surprised too, because I was like, this is gonna fucking suck. But you know, you got Mancini and Duraf, so it's like you would hope it was gonna be good, but it just blew my expectations mm-hmm. away. Yeah, um, and it's 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 crazy because when I was at Halloween Horror Nights this year, they were promoting the shit out of out of this show. Like they had like a little photo op thing. They were showing the trailer like all over the place. Yeah. And I even watching the trailer, I was like, eh, like I'll probably check it out, but like I'm not, you know, like racing home to watch it. But now that everybody like it, it's gotten so much praise from everybody that I know that's seen it. Like, regardless of if you're a horror fan or not, like everybody's been talking about it. It's it is just it's just wonderful. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, I also checked out. I don't know. Did, did you ever watch Dexter? Yes, a long, a long time ago. Yeah, so I, I checked out the first episode of uh, New Blood. How is it? You know, honestly, like it's obviously like you go into something like this with very low expectations. Yeah, um, I never finished Dexter, but I know it was one of those shows that people absolutely hated the ending. Yeah, I, I will. Yeah, I mean, like as much as I enjoyed the show, like I'll, you know, I'll, I'll agree that the ending was not great. Um, and I think it's cool that they're doing this uh, continuation to try to like, you know, not retcon the ending, but they, they're trying to like continue the story and maybe bring other things to light. And I think some of the shit they're doing is interesting. I think like Michael C. Hall is just such a great actor. And when he steps back into the role of Dexter, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to ignore it. It's, yeah. it's like he, he did such a good job that even though I'm not usually a fan of reboots and remakes or whatever, watching him back on the screen as that character to me is kind of worth it enough. It's like, this obviously did not need to happen. Right. And it probably shouldn't happen. <laughs> but but the fact it is happening, I'm accepting it. And we'll see. I mean, there's only one episode out and they, they did a couple things that are sort of similar to, to the original show, but there's not like that a kind of theme song. There's none of those um, dark passenger monologues. So mm-hmm. there's differences, and it's much more of like it's much more like c- cinematically based. Like the way it's shot, it's not like so. Like the original Dexter is kind of more like in a in a weird way. It's kind of like a gritty graphic novel. The way uh-huh. it was shot in this one, it's 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 like a movie, and it's kind of like it, you know it's. It, to me, it's give me Michael C. Hall, give me killing. I'll probably like it. I'll yeah. probably like it. I, I'm not going to say it's great, but it's, you know, so we'll see what happens yeah. with it. Yeah. I'm curious as the, as it like once it ends to see what like the general consensus is from people who are like hardcore Dexter fans. Cause it, it'd be very easy, like in these kind of cases, they're hoping that like, oh, well, we'll fix it and make everybody like it again but that's not necessarily guaranteed so it'll be interesting to see if people prefer it ending with the original ending or this new ending yeah and it yeah it it will be and hopefully i and like i said i mean it, i'm i'm fairly easy to please so like even if it ends up sucking i i, I got to see michael c hall again so yeah, in 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 something that's not um, Netflix's safe, 
<laughs> just, yeah, I was going to say, has he even like been in anything other not, than Dexter? Because I don't not know. Not really. I mean, I think Safe was maybe the last thing I yeah. saw him. In. I mean, obviously he was in so. stuff before Dexter, but since then I haven't I haven't seen him in anything. No, and um, I don't know if that's his choice or typecasting or what, but yeah, I'm I'm just glad to see him back. So yeah, we'll see. But yeah, I think that about wraps it up for Chinatown. And yep. We'll be coming at you guys with uh, some more neo-noir at some point. And then we'll, at the end of the month, we'll wrap up with our big November episode featuring Anthony again. And, oh, one other cool thing I wanted to announce. I was going to do it on socials, but we're still trying to figure out a date. Um, uh, my friend Anthony and I also co-run a gaming channel called Retro Roulette. And so we're going to merge channels for, for the month and we're going to play L.A. Noir because it is uh very much in theme and Which I've i can't believe you haven't play. played that game before i know i i, I, I love I, that game <laughs> i know I, I well i i sent you i sent you that scene with valdez that like <laughs> absolutely killed yeah me, i can i do not want to repeat but basically it was like wow okay i need i need that game i need well la noir i would say is like borderline an adaptation of chinatown not like the plot or anything but like it is very they very clearly were like let's make a game that's chinatown <laughs> yeah ties in pretty directly not again not like plot wise just like aesthetically yeah so i'm i'm really excited to to check that out and we we we've had some scheduling issues so i i haven't announced an actual concrete date yet but we're gonna try to hammer out the details like by tonight and then i'll post about it um it'll probably be like at some point next week or something or if I could fit it in like before I go on a trip this week, but yeah, that's, that'll be fun. Uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And that's, that's pretty much it. Uh, this has been Sammy boy with the silver screen Friends podcast. <laughs> and this has been Blake and movies just do suck. I, you know, above all, if you've learned anything today, I don't care if we were praising the movie, just know that movies don't watch suck. it. Just don't watch just don't it. Watch- Zero out of ten. (laughs) Zero out of ten. See you next time. (laughs) Happy November. (laughs) 